Okay, we're Romans 1, starting in 18 through 32 uh, this week. Uh, and, and before we jump in, just kind of take you back to some of this. Actually, first, let me, let me just say this, uh, that where we're starting tonight uh, is going to be a little bit tricky, going to be a little rough at points, but it's also actually uh, perhaps one of the most widely agreed upon ideas in the world, and that is that the world is messed up. Um, it does not matter what your religion is or if you have a religion, what your belief system or your worldview is. One thing that everyone pretty much agrees on when we look around the world today is that things aren't as they should be when you watch the news and hear about the atrocities of war crimes or school shootings or, or kidnappings or all, all these things. It's easy to look around and go, man, this isn't how it should be. The, the, the big issue, though, everyone agrees on that, that things are messed up, that things are wrong. What people don't agree on is what to do about it. What, what is the solution to fix these things, to, to help make the world right again? And the reason that people don't agree on what the solution is is because everyone has a different diagnosis. So the, the primary thing, the foundation before we can begin to work through what needs to change, what needs to happen to make the world right, is we got to know the diagnosis. Any good doctor can tell you, like, if I go in with a tummy ache, his diagnosis between uh, stomach cancer or indigestion is going to make a big difference in, the, in how he treats me. And, and so there are all these different um, reasons that people give that the world is messed up um, people need to be more educated. People don't know the truth. People don't know how they ought to live. Or, or our world systems are messed up. Greed in the way that there's an imbalance of power. Um, or there needs to be a greater level of, of human rights given to people in specific areas. So there's all these different diagnoses that lead to different treatments. Tonight, we read through, and actually for the next few nights, a uh, few weeks, we're going to be reading through the Bible's diagnosis of the problem. This is what the Scripture says is the problem, and we've got to know that before we can deal with uh, the treatment of those things. Uh, but before we do that real quick, here's kind of a view. of We talked about this last week, Scott did, the way we try to study the Bible. We want to walk through this process every time we study the Bible, not asking, what does it mean to me? What do I feel like this says? Or this, yeah, this is saying to me. Um, instead, we want to ask, what did the author mean it to say when he, when he wrote this? So we start here with the original audience. When it was written to the Romans, what was the aim, author's intended meaning? What was Paul getting at? And so we explore things like context and background and all that. And then we'll begin to move to what are some timeless principles that we can pull from this? What are some truths that this is teaching us that apply to all people in all times? And, and as Scott gets up here, we'll begin to move. We'll make the shift in my section. And then when Scott gets up, we'll move into this. And then we'll work into how do we apply this to our lives today. Now, a couple key things that Scott mentioned last week when we're studying, a couple principles that we want to hit on. The first is the idea of context. And that is that in order to understand, and this is at the school we went to uh, when we were taught in, in the class of biblical interpretation, uh, the, the phrase that gets mentioned over and over again, the motto is context is king. If I want to know what a text means, the simplest, most effective way of doing that is looking at the text on either side of it. 
and seeing the flow of thought that's taking place. And so what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks is all really kind of one unit that we're going to be talking about. So it's designed to be seen as one, but there are three movements that take place in here. So tonight, Paul is going to tell us this, that the world is a mess because people, and specifically he's going to be talking about Gentiles, non-Jewish people, are replacing God with something else. And so that leads us to a mess. And then next week as we get into chapter 2, we'll see this, that everyone, and Paul is going to say, even the Jewish people, because remember, he's writing to a church of both Gentiles and Jews. And as he starts taking shots at all the Gentiles, all the Jewish people are going to be going, Amen, get them, Paul. Um, and then he's going to turn it around on them and say, Whoa, 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 not so fast. And, and he's going to say that everyone is in on this. Everyone is a part of this. Everyone is facing judgment, even the Jewish people. And then we come to this. The law cannot fix this problem. So the problem that is here, the, the, the Old Testament and the way of following that, that the Jewish people have gone, cannot fix the problem. So state it again. Uh, section 1, uh, everybody's screwed up, so everybody's hosed. All right? Section 2, no, seriously, everybody's hosed, including you. Section 3, y'all need Jesus, all right? That's basically kind of the statement that Paul is making through here. Uh, so let's dig in. If you'll remember last week, open up again, context. Last week we were in 14 through 17 where Paul kind of gives his theme for this passage, or for the book. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul says, in it, the gospel, that's his big theme, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And, and Scott told us that what Paul is talking about when he says the righteousness of God is you can know that he is always just when he makes his judgments. He always gets it right. And second, you can know that he is faithful to his promises. The way he talked about doing it from the beginning, when he called Abraham and all that, he's, he's been consistent all the way through. He's not changing things up on you. He is faithful. He is uh, true to the covenant. He is righteous. And now Paul is going to begin to set the stage to explain how this gets revealed to the world. Uh, verse 18. Uh, actually, let me, let me give you one more principle before we start. Scott said this, that we look to the Word for our authority. That, we, that when we read this, we submit to this as the Word of God. Um, that we don't go, no, 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 but I think really probably the better idea Paul is, or you know, the way I see it is that, um, and this is going to be one of those texts where there are multiple times when, when something inside of you might want to go, no, 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 I don't like that. No, I, I think it should be something, I, I think... Paul, you might be off here. I think, sure, that may work for you guys back then before you knew a lot of the stuff we know now. But today, this is really how we view the world. This is really how it should be lived. So bear that in mind as we begin to read this, that we want to submit ourselves to this and trust that God is good, even if His Word may um, shake us a little bit at times. So, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So, right out of the gates, we're going, we're going to wrath, alright? Hellfire and brimstone from the beginning. Um, he just said that God's righteousness is revealed by the gospel. He said that in 17, and now he's saying, let me show you. His wrath is shown against all ungodliness, i.e., God is always right. 
He's always just, which means he always punishes sin. There's some people who do not like this idea. But Paul is saying you can rest easy that God always gets it right. He's not indifferent to suffering and injustice in the world. He's not apathetic. He's not removed from those things. God will see all things right in the end and all sin will be punished by His wrath. Um, but notice I said hellfire and brimstone. Actually, Paul doesn't say Paul's, uh, that God's wrath will be revealed. He says it is revealed, present tense. So he's not necessarily talking about hell and judgment right now, or at least not all that. There's something else that he's talking about when he says that. The crucial, crucial issue, though, and we'll get to what that is later, what that, what that present tense wrath is. But the crucial issue, Paul says, is that men are suppressing the truth. And now he'll go on to explain in the next couple verses. For what can be known about God uh, is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So, Paul says, God's wrath is being poured out against all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men, of humanity. And then somebody says, but wait, Paul, what about somebody who doesn't know about God's righteousness? What about somebody who doesn't know the rules? And what about somebody who doesn't know about God and that they're supposed to follow Him? Paul's answer is that that person doesn't exist. He says that actually everyone can know about God by looking around them, that everyone has the ability to see those things so that they are without excuse. He says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to, um, to them. His attributes are made known or clearly perceived in the creation of the world. We call this, there are two different kinds of revelation. So one is special revelation. That is, the, the truth that is given to us directly uh, from God. That is, like His Scriptures, or when a prophet stood up in the Old Testament and said, Thus saith the Lord, and then they spoke something, that was special revelation. Or when Jesus came down and spoke, that was special. The second kind of revelation, though, is general revelation. And that's the kind of truth that is spoken to all people at all times. Um, one of the bi biggest and best examples of that is creation. Paul says... That everyone, no matter who they are, when you look around at the things around you, common sense tells you that that didn't just appear one day. That something caused that to happen. And you can go, well, yeah, yeah, the reason a tree is here is because there was another tree before that, and that dropped a seed, and that became a tree. And there was another tree before that, and Paul goes, yeah, great. And Aristotle, by the way, he's the one who really kind of pushed this a lot too. Aristotle and Paul both go, yeah, that's true. But at some point, you move back far enough and someone or something had to start the first tree. Someone or something had to get everything kicked off. Common sense tells you that. And, and Paul says, what can be known that there is someone who has a divine power to make this stuff? Someone who is thinking through these things and creating these things, that is something that everyone can know. Now, Paul's not saying that you can know everything about God by looking at a tree or a mountain. But he's saying you have the ability to know within you that there is more to life than what I see in front of me. That you, we feel it in our chest, even. 
you might say, that we know there's something more beyond this. And, and Paul says you can see it in creation. Uh, one of the most recent examples of this is this uh, British philosopher by the name of Anthony Flew. Uh, he was this guy writing, uh, I think he was in Oxford, and he was this strong secular philosopher. He was actually called uh, by one person the world's most influential atheist at one point, back in the 1900s. The world's most influential atheist. He would debate all these kind of big-name Christians about the existence of God, William Lane Craig, um, and Greg, Gary Habermas, he would, he would debate these big-name Christians, always trying to bring down Christianity, always trying to prove atheism to be a fact. And then in 2004, 2005, he shocked the world um, when he announced that actually he has come to believe in God. Now, not the Christian God, not, he didn't really, not any specific religion, but he, he decided after years of study that there has to be a God. And his main reason why is because uh, back in the 60s when I first started writing, it was easy to not believe in God. But the more science has progressed, the more I see that there is no other way to explain things. One of the things that really haunted him was human DNA. As he began to study DNA, there's no other way to explain this than by intelligent design. And so he began to speak out about this fact that creation, the things around him, testify to this truth that there is something behind all of those things. Um, he says at one point, this is a quote from his, him, he says, the case for, a, for an Aristotelian God, that is God, Aristotle talking about this uh, God who began all things, the case for that kind of God who has the characteristics of power and also intelligence is now much stronger than it ever was before, which sounds a lot like Paul saying God's divine eternal power and divine attributes have been known by the things that we see. Um, so Anthony Flew in 04 makes this uh, statement and, and proves a lot of what Paul has said. Verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul says that there is this pattern that begins to take place in the world uh, amongst all people, and specifically he's got his eyes on the Gentiles right now. And he says that as people refuse to acknowledge God, that they become dumber, that they become more foolish is his word. Now, by that, he doesn't mean they, they don't know 2 plus 2 anymore, or they don't know how gravity works, or they don't know... He means the kind of wisdom and foolishness that is described in the Bible. In Proverbs 9.10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so what he's saying is, when a person refuses to acknowledge God as God, when they refuse to honor Him, something actually begins to happen in them that makes it harder then for them to acknowledge God. And so then they... They refuse to acknowledge Him even more, which then leads to something in their heart that makes it even harder. And every time they reject God, their mind and their heart becomes darkened and they begin to be pushed further and further away from the truth. 
And, and there's this pattern. One of the things you want to do when you read the Bible is look for repetition and patterns to see themes. All right? You're going to see this word pop up three different times. Exchange. That they exchange something that is good and right for uh, something that is false and bad. And then the next thing is you're going to see this, that after they exchange that, God hands them over. So the first one that we see here is it says that they exchanged the glory of God for idols, for the images of man and of animals and of birds. And then it says, so God handed them over, it says there, to their lusts. The Greek word is literally just desires. Handed them over to their desires in that process. So question, actually it says give them up, but the word also means hand them over, and sometimes it's translated hand them over. It says God gives them up to their desires. Question, what does that mean that God gives them up to sin? That he gives them up to poor thinking? That's a really debated issue today. What does it mean for God to give somebody up? Um, One commentator says, and I think this is probably it, that what Paul is talking about is more than just permission. He's not just going, okay, you can do that. But it's kind of less than causation. He's not making them sin. We see in the Bible clearly, God does not cause people to sin. James tells us this. God does not tempt anyone or cause anybody to be into temptation. Um, and so God's not making it. But there's something that's happening that God, when somebody says, I don't want you, God says, okay. Um, one, of the, one of the better illustrations I heard is, is it's almost like we're on a river in this boat and the river is trying to take us downstream constantly and God is holding on to the boat. But there's a point at which when somebody says, I don't want anything to do with you and rejects you, that God says, um, as you wish, basically, and let's go of the boat. Um, if someone rejects him to do that, and maybe some might say even gives a little shove. Um, says, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand you over to that. I'm going to give you uh, up to those things. Um, so this becomes kind of a crucial pattern that as they exchange God's truth for a lie, um, then um, he hands them over to that lie and lets them go to it. All right, next couple verses. These ones are a little bit uh, sticky, a little bit tough. Um, verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So, I got a few minutes here. Plenty of time to tackle the uh, greatest hot-button religious issue in modern uh, history. Uh, so we'll, we'll take a shot at this for a second. Um, here's the truth. I cannot do, we, we, we knew when we were coming to this text, we knew weeks ago, months ago, that we were going to come here and we were not going to be able to do full justice to this text in the time that we have. Um, partially because this is not what this text is all about, but it's here. And, and Paul highlights this sin of same-sex attraction, or not same-sex attraction, but same-sex activity, engaging in same-sex behavior um, in, this, in this text. And so it's one that we go, we cannot skip around it. We have to talk through it. But I also know that I cannot give this uh, the due diligence that it deserves in these things. So let me give you three quick thro- thoughts before we jump into this real quick. First, when we talk about this idea 
um, of LGBT issues, when we talk through what the Bible says, we are not simply, and you know this, we are not simply talking about an issue. We are not simply talking about an idea. We are talking about people. Um, I, as I am about to dig into this, am talking about a close family member of mine who identifies as gay and lives a gay lifestyle and someone that I love deeply. And so when I talk about this, I'm talking about someone I love. And you're probably thinking of someone uh, that you know, that you love as we work through those things. Second thing is that a conversation over a cup of coffee would serve us far better in this. And so um, you're going to leave probably a little bit unsatisfied by how much I can talk through this. Um, and I want you to know I would love to talk to you more deeply about this. This is one of the reasons our numbers are up here. These are our cell phone numbers. And we would love to have a conversation about this with you if you'd like to do that. So text us and, and ask to grab coffee. Um, let's get together. We would love to talk through these things. Third is this. You can get a bigger understanding if, you, if you're still hungry to know more about this stuff and to know what we believe about this issue. Um, you can get a better understanding from a few different resources. One is um, Sunnybrook, our church, um, has a podcast called Consider This. And we tackled this issue in four, I think it was either three-part or four-part. We did three or four episodes on this. What should a Christian believe about homosexuality? So if you go to wherever you get the podcast and check out Consider This, search Consider This and find the Sunnybrook one, you can go, it's all the way back at the beginning. They're like episodes three, four, five, and six. And go find those. You can listen and hear what we believe the Bible teaches about this and what we believe. Also, we've got a number of these books here. Is God Anti-Gay? Um, and this is an incredible resource. Um, we buy these and then sell these to you guys for cheap for anybody who wants to know because we know there are a lot of people working through this. So these are five bucks if you'd like to come up and take a look at this. Um, afterwards, feel free to do that. All right. Um, with that being said, here's what I would say about this in the few minutes that we have. Um, the big issue, this is the clearest text in the Scriptures, specifically in the New Testament. I would argue in the Scriptures as a whole. This is the clearest text in the Scriptures speaking against same-sex behavior, speaking against uh, gay sexual activity, lesbian sexual activity in, in any form. And so because of that, this is one of the texts where people seek to find alternative answers here. They seek to find alternative interpretations here. And one of the main things that people like to come here and accuse this text of going is saying, Paul, yes, Paul's accusing some stuff here, but Paul doesn't know what we know today. Paul doesn't know about loving same-sex relationships, that, that people have a mutual loving relationship. What Paul is dealing with is what was common in the first century, which was like a, a same-sex relationship that was really, it was called pederasty. And it was, it was basically an older male and a younger boy. It's basically what we'd refer to as like pedophilia. And, and sometimes that boy might be a slave or might be something like that. And so that's what Paul's condemning here. But he wouldn't, if he knew about loving same-sex relationships, Paul wouldn't have a problem with that. Um, now listen, Paul is totally condemning pederasty. He is completely against that. But Paul is talking much too broad here to just refer to that. One is he talks about women exchanging passions for men, exchanging that with the passion for other women. And we don't have examples of pederasty in women in the, in the first century. Um, relationships between women, we have a, at least a fair amount of evidence of loving same-sex relationships between women. And yet Paul still says that is wrong. 
And so he's speaking against those, um, regardless of what people might, might try to say about that. Another thing people say is, well, what Paul is talking about is uh, temple prostitution. So back in that day, one of the ways that you could go and worship different pagan gods was by going and sleeping with a prostitute, having sex at the temple there with a prostitute. Often it was male, like men would go and have sex with male prostitutes. And Paul's clearly talking about idolatry here, so that's all he's dealing with. Once again, the issue is that Paul is speaking in such broad strokes, and he does not say men abandon loving same-sex relationships for prostitution. He says men abandon relationships with women for relationships with men. And women did the same, abandoning relationships with men for women. So he is speaking against same-sex activity in all categories in this, uh, in this section. So question, why does he single this out here? Of all the things Paul could be talking about, and he's going to talk about a lot of things, why does he emphasize this here? Uh, Michael DeFazio, who some of you guys know, he teaches a class on Romans at Ozark Christian College, and, and he lays out at least three possible reasons that Paul emphasizes this issue uh, in, in this specific section of his text. The first one is this. It might be serving, his, uh, serving the purpose of his, he uses this phrase, rhetorical sting operation. That is, here's what he means. Jews, this is something that the Jews accuse the Gentile world of a lot. They came down on them hard for same-sex activity and said, see, this is a sign that you're unholy. And so what Paul might be doing is using one of the Jewish arguments so that all the Jews will go, yeah, that's right, Paul, and then kind of bring the Jews close to him, and then he can, like, cut them too, right? Um, he, can, he can then turn on them and talk about these things. That may be what he's doing. Um, another big reason, though, is probably this, that what same-sex activity does is it shows how the very first command that God ever gave has been rejected by human beings. Very first command God gave, be fruitful and multiply. And God designed the world in a way in which human beings, two human beings, both made in the image of God. It wasn't just male made in the image of God, but female. And they were designed to come together and make more image bearers, designed that as a unit they display the image of God. And what Paul is saying is when you get idol worship going, when people reject God, even from the very get-go, male and female coming together, be fruitful and multiply, even that gets turned and gets twisted. Third reason is that this depicts the reversal of God's life-giving design. Um, so that you have God giving life through male and female, making sex something that is designed to bear fruit, and us twisting it to make it solely about my pleasure, solely about what I want. It's about turning things in on myself. Um, so, like I said, there is tons more I wish I could talk through this about. Tons more I wish I could be sharing. would love to hear um, from you if you want to chat through these things and we can talk a little bit more about that. I um, want to answer this one other question. What is, Paul says that when they do this, they receive the due penalty for their error. Men, um, sleeping with men, and they receive in themselves the due penalty for their, <coughs> excuse me, of their error. What does he mean by that? For a long time, that people use that to describe this is why like AIDS is happening within the gay community. They're receiving the penalty for their error or other STDs. There's a couple problems with that. Um, one is that Paul wouldn't have known about AIDS. I don't think it was a thing yet um, when he wrote about this, all right? And, and he may have in mind, yes, 
part of wrath is the natural consequences of our behavior. So diseases and those kinds of things, that could be part of it. But contextually, that does not seem to be what Paul is getting at in this text. It ignores what he's saying here in this whole passage. Look at the very next verse, 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The pattern here, over and over again, is that when you do evil, when you choose evil over God, you, you get handed over to that evil. You, you get more and more sick in your mind, more and more foolish in your brain, more and more wicked in the way you think. That is the due penalty that they receive within themselves as they go further and further from God. Verse 29 says this, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. That's a weird one to fit in there, right? Um, Not listening to your mommy. Uh, Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Here's what Paul is doing. He is showing the wide spectrum of what a life in rejection of God looks like. He's casting a wide net to show this truth that everyone is involved in this. This is one of the reasons that we don't want to use Romans 1 simply as a means of blasting people in the LGBT community. Look how wicked you are. Look what Paul talks about. Because in the very next verses, Paul goes, "Uh, yeah, you too. Have you gossiped before? Then you're lumped into this as well. Have you disobeyed your parents? Then I'm counting you in that same category. And so everyone, there is no one, Paul says, who escapes this. There is no one who, rem- who gets out of this thing looking good or escapes unscathed. And he says that people not only do all these things, that they begin to celebrate these things. We live in a culture that when someone hurts you, we celebrate vengeance or revenge put on that person. We celebrate sexual freedom and the things that we can do with that. We celebrate greed and we celebrate hatred. And because of this, Paul says, every single human being deserves to die deserves death and it will come to us to all of us but again Paul here is talking about wrath in present terms not in past terms so what is it the wrath that God keeps pouring out on people in this passage you may have caught it in the pattern you may have noticed when I just kind of touched on it in 28 the wrath is that God continues to give people over to their desires, to their sin, to their foolish thinking. Here's the deal. Once you have exchanged God for something else, once you've decided that you want something else, that you want to worship something else above God, the most wrathful thing God could do to you is give you what you want. It's the worst thing that could happen to you is for Him to let you go down that path. That's why... For brothers and sisters I know who are strained, I, I pray for God to not let their life be easy. Not because I don't, not because I want them to suffer, not because I want them to go through hardship, but because the most wrathful thing God could do is let them experience joy and success and happiness apart from Him. Meanwhile, they drift further and further down the river. 
This is the wrath of God working out, at least part of the wrath of God, working out on the sins of man and woman. Let's take a break here, and then Scott will jump into this idea of wrath a little bit more. All right. So, here we go. I lost you. I I gave you like three seconds and I lost you. I'll wait till you finish your conversations. Yeah, no, just keep going. That's fine. All right, here we go. Here's what I want to say. We live in a culture that loves nice people. Don't you love nice people? I love nice people. Um, we, we, we value niceness. We really do. We elevate it quite a bit, actually. I told you a couple weeks ago when I went, when I went off to college, uh, one of the things that I can look back on and realize, man, I needed to grow up a little bit, was I really wanted to be known as a nice guy. I really did. I wanted to be known as a nice guy, which is actually why this text and, and others like it that seem maybe harsh, um, this is why I, I kind of struggled with texts like this. It's because, you know who doesn't sound very nice? It's Paul. Paul doesn't seem real nice. I mean, he, he kind of goes after us a little bit. Um, he, he gives us some hard truth. He, he, he sounds kind of judgy. And, 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 you know, and we know we're not supposed to judge people. That's, that's kind of what we, we, we say. Oh, we're, I'm, I'm not really to judge. And Paul seems pretty judgy here. He has, a, has an opinion about, about things. I thought if we, if we don't have anything nice to say, we shouldn't say anything at all. Paul has some, some not-so-nice things to say. Um, he even goes so far as to tell us who we can have relations with and who we can't. Actually, he just says who we can't. And so, how do we think about this? And how does this work? Actually, if you take it even further, you could, you could say, and someone could argue, that God doesn't seem real nice in this text. Like, what's with this wrath thing coming down on bad people? Like, what's, what's with the um, wanting us to see Him in His invisible attributes? Or what about at the end when He kind of just goes off and says, alright, fine, hands us over to destructive things and, and says we deserve to die. We continue doing those things like, Wow. And, and so God doesn't fit our culture's definition of nice very well. And that, that's hard for people, especially us. And I'm, I'm one of them. And Drew and I are just like you. Like, we, we were raised in this culture. We, we know the, the tug that, even as Drew is talking about this, this issue, this, and, and the people that are in this LGBT community, like, even as he's talking, I know what I believe about it, and I believe everything Drew said. But I, I feel the same tension that you feel. I feel the same like, uh, man, why does it have to be this way? I feel it just like you. But I have to come to a point where I come and say, all right, God, I'm trusting and submitting myself to you. You know, you know who really needs God to be nice? is a group of people that are in what I, what I like to call um, cultural Christianity. I, I think there's a difference between cultural Christianity and Christian culture. 
So, Christian culture and versus cultural Christianity. Um, maybe you could tell who I think is the bad guys and who I think is the good guys. One is in red and the other is the brightest orange in America. Um, I don't know if you could tell that by the screen. It looks yellow, but I made it orange, I promise you. So, so cultural Christianity is, is Christianity that's defined by the culture. The first word defines the second word. That's how you know which is which. It's, 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 it's Christianity that's kind of influenced by every, everything else around us. Um, and what happens is, we, there, that's, that's, like a, that's like a boat that's not tied to anything on the ocean. It's just going to drift wherever the waves take it. And that's not the Christianity that's kind of represented here. That's not, that's not it. And so cult, uh, Christian culture is, is culture that is defined by Christ-centered people. That Christians creating a Christ-centered culture, that's a lot of C's, but it's, it's Christ's creating culture is really what that is. And that's, a, that's a different thing. Because that's tied to something that's not moving. And so... One of the things I would love for you to do as a follower of Jesus, so those of you who, who are followers of Jesus, in your time in college is to be able to recognize not just, not just things of this world, not just worldly ideas, like, you know, party all you want and chase after whatever you want and, you know, live and eat and die because tomorrow we die, whatever. Like, those are obvious. Worldly things, yeah, okay. But to be able to recognize a flavor of, of Christianity that, that isn't true of Christ, of cultural Christianity, would be really good for you to recognize those things. Um, so 23 years later, after, after college, I can tell you that being nice isn't really a priority for me. It's actually, some of my greatest regrets have come from me trying to be nice. Because what, what has happened is I would um, shy away from saying hard truth that people needed to hear or, or loving someone enough to tell them the truth. And so I can tell you I, I don't really want to be known as a nice guy anymore. And that may sound strange to you. That's not really a priority for me. If it does sound strange, listen to the, what this, this lady, her name is Shannon Hode Miller. She wrote a book about this topic of niceness. Listen to what she says. For as long as I can remember, I have loved to be nice. Not just loved, but needed. And it is an identity I have struggled to leave behind. Niceness is a form of superficial kindness that's used as a means to a selfish end, she says. We use, we use niceness to grease the wheels of our social interactions. Think about that. To grease the wheels of our social interactions. In other words, we know how to, use ni- we know how to be nice whenever it, it plays to our advantage. Most of you don't know this reference, okay? Anybody watch Leave It to Beaver growing up? Anybody? Okay, a few hands, okay? I see that hand. I see that hand. Anyway, um, and so there's a guy on Leave It to Beaver called Eddie Haskell. Anybody know who Eddie Haskell is? You heard anybody talk about Eddie Haskell? So Eddie Haskell was this kid. Uh, so he was um, Wally. So there's Wally and Beaver. Who names their kid Beaver? I have no idea. Um, but anyway. So Wally's friend, um, Eddie Haskell, would come over, and, and Eddie would be like an angel in front of his parents, 
in front of their parents. And then he would get off into their room when their parents went around, and he was the one instigating all the mischief. He was the one causing them to do things, and then he'd be like, I don't know why they did that. So, so what she's saying, she's describing this, this idea of um, using niceness to grease the wheels of our social action is basically just realizing, yeah, we know how to use it to our advantage. Um, and I think it's true of all of us. She says, we employ it like a ladder, helping us to scale the heights of our career. And then this statement. <clears throat> For many Christians, following Jesus means we are just really, really nice. That's, so, you don't need Christ to be a nice person. I know lots of nice people who are not followers of Jesus. So how you, how you can recognize cultural Christianity is because you don't need Christ to bear its virtues. To display its virtues, you don't need Jesus. And so this idea that just being a Christian means being really, really nice is, is that boat that has drifted way off the coast. So, Paul was not concerned <clears throat> with his, this superficial niceness, but he was kind because he loved them enough to tell them the truth. And the truth is, we're all guilty. <clears throat> Paul levels the playing field here with what he accuses us of. Um, so you ready for the not-so-nice news? Drew's already kind of hinted at it and said it. That we're all idolaters. That you're an idolater, and so am I. That, that, that's Paul's accusation. That's what you know. replacing God means, is we're idolaters. And uh, it's 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 replacing God with anything or anyone. It's it's loving God, loving something or someone more than we love God. And Paul says, we've all done it. And idolatry was a pretty big deal to God in the Bible. In fact, big enough deal to where He made it His number one commandment. Look 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 at what it says in Exodus twenty. Um, this is this is verse two through five ish. I kind of cut out a little in the middle. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Here's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And he goes on to say, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's the God we serve. He's a jealous God. And so, I think Paul gives three specific ways in which all of us are idolaters. All of us have committed idolatry, even even your sweetest grandma. My, both of my grandparents, both of my grandmas are, are now past. Both of them were idolaters. And they, are the sweet, they were the most sweetest, amazing people that I know. I mean, they, man, that's probably an overstatement. Um, they're really, really sweet, kind people. Both of them love the Lord. Um, but I, I, you know, the, the longer you are around someone and the older you get the more you see okay yeah I see your struggles and my grand, my grandma's had struggles just like I do but all of us have done this these things here's the first one here's one of them <clears throat> all of us have worshipped creation over the creator all of us have worshipped creation over the creator we are made to worship this is something that we're born to do and unfortunately, our natural instincts is to worship the things that we see. 
and the things that we love. You and I don't naturally want to just worship God. That has to be something that's changed within us. And so when we see something we want or something that we shouldn't have, we, um, we go after it. And we often get it. So when we, when we eat something amazing, uh, our first instinct isn't to think about how amazing God is that He would design all these flavors and that He would give us taste buds. No, we don't go there. We just talk about how awesome the food is and we talk about how awesome the restaurant is and we talk about how we want to go back and how I want to have that again and I can't wait to eat this again. It's, <clears throat> it's not our natural instinct to eat something amazing and then think about God. It's not our natural instinct to see someone we think is beautiful and, and then naturally just worship God. You don't see a guy walking down the beach on spring break having a worship service, just thanking the Lord for all the beautiful women that are wearing next to nothing. Like You don't see that. If you do, run. Because <laughs> that dude is playing a game, I promise you. Um, it's just not natural for us. That's not, what, that's not our first instinct, is when we see someone we're attracted to, is to, is to just go to God and thank Him for the beauty of His creation. That's not how we are naturally wired. And, and when, you, um, when you get married, there's a few of us in, in this room that are, it's really, really easy to put the person that you're married to above God, to love them more than God, to kind of make them the center of your world. And if you think that's difficult, just have some humans that come from you. It, get, it gets even harder to not place these little creatures on the throne of your heart. Um, and so, uh, Mark Driscoll said this, and I think this is brilliant. Uh, he said that when, we, that when we make good things, God things, they become bad things. <laughs> and when we make, that's our tendency. It's not that we, we're going to just take something awful and make it our God. No, we, we want to take all the good things that we love and we're going to love them more than we should. When we make good things, God things, they become bad things. So why would God wire us to worship? Here's what I believe. It's because He knows that we become like what we worship. Look, look at what it says in Psalm 115, 3-8. Our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of, their, of human hands. And those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. N.T. Wright, he's a New Testament scholar, he, he said this, he kind of went on about this, he said, you become like what you worship. When you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. We've all worshipped creation over the Creator. And Paul says, guilty. Another one we've done <clears throat> is all of us think we're smarter than God. All of us have acted in a way that shows that we think we're smarter than God. Anytime we take things that God gives us, relationships or sex or food or... Uh, material things or abilities or passions or gifts, whatever. We decide to take them um, and use them for our own purposes. Basically what we're saying to God is, God, I'm gonna, I know, I understand your way, but I'm going to do it my way. All of us 
All of us have done that. that that's, the, that's the story of Genesis 3. God creates his, these image bearers. He gives them good gifts. He blesses them with good gifts. He tells them what, what to do and what not to do. And they do exactly what He says not to do. They take what He, what he gave them and they used it for their own purposes. So it's not natural for us to... Um, to want to just, whenever we receive something or, or, uh, or, or have something, to go, God, you know what? This is, this is how you desire, I will do it. Well, however you design it, this is how I'm going to use it. However you gave it, this is how I'm going to... That's not natural for us. We have to learn the hard way. Um, Paul makes it clear that we're not smarter than God. Listen to Romans 11. We'll get here next semester. and I, we, I love this text. He makes it clear. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who can be His counselor? In other words, has anyone ever been able to give advice to God? Has anyone ever been able to take something that God gave us and go, You know, I understand how you gave it, but I think I can do something better with it. That's... That's not possible. And yet all of us are like spoiled children and when we don't get what we want or we don't get, uh, when life doesn't go kind of our way, we get upset and, and we think we can do it better. So, Paul says we're guilty of this one too. The last one <clears throat> is that all of us have, have failed to acknowledge God. We fail to acknowledge God. It's not natural for us to come out of the womb just thanking God for the gift of life and for uh, a womb to be raised in. And, and you know, we, we, don't, we don't naturally, when, when we come to our senses as, as people, uh, we don't just turn around and thank, thank our parents for raising us and for taking care of us. And That's not natural in us. That's just, we just kind of naturally take things for granted. We don't naturally say, okay, God, this is all you. Like, the, you, like you provided this. You gave this. When, when, whenever we do something good or, or whenever we display a, a gift of ours and people acknowledge us or, or give us praise or compliment us, it's, we all go through this weird, like we, we want more of that, but we have to act like we don't. And, and yet we kind of love it when they do. And so we, we don't naturally just have this natural, oh, Yes, it's, 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 Lord is good. He's gifted me these things and He's done these things. That's not natural for us. That has, to, that has to happen as the Spirit changes our heart to help us see and discern. Like, this is what He deserves. That, that's how it happens. And so what Paul's saying is, we're all guilty of this. We naturally think we deserve more. And we want more credit. And, and we deserve it. Isaiah 42, 5-8 says this thus says God the Lord who created this part isn't on your screen but it's worth reading the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread out the earth and what comes from it who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it and he says I am the Lord that is my name my glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. When we don't 
acknowledge God, it's like we're trying to take His glory from Him. And Paul says, guilty. So why all the bad news? I thought this was about the good news. I thought Romans was all about the good news. Well, the bad news is a major part of the good news. And Paul is being really kind to tell us this news. Imagine, imagine if a doctor knew you had cancer but didn't want to tell you because he didn't want to scare you. Imagine if, if a professor knew you were failing but didn't want to tell you because she didn't want you to worry. Or imagine if um, your boyfriend, sorry, your friend saw your fiancé kissing another woman but she didn't want to tell you because she didn't want to crush your dreams of this relationship. Or like imagine if your parents um, could have prevented you from, from viewing pornography. Okay? And it would have required taking something from you that you really, really wanted. Like your phone or, or a computer or, or television. And removing it completely from your, from your life. And that would have prevented you f- But they didn't because... They didn't want you to be mad at them. Like, anytime we're given bad news about maybe how we're failing in something we're designed to do, or maybe it's something that crushes our selfish dreams, or even hurts our feelings because of sin, I believe like that that's the kindest thing someone could do for us. Why? Why is that? Because I believe that God has created us to glorify Him. We're made to glorify God and God alone. But listen to this quote by a guy named John Piper. I love this quote. He says, We were made to know and treasure the glory of God above all things. And when we trade that treasure for images, everything is distorted. The sun of God's glory is made to shine at the center of the solar system of our soul. And when it does, all the planets of our life are held in their proper orbit. But when the sun is displaced, everything flies apart. The healing of the soul begins by restoring the glory of God to its flaming all attracting place at the center. We're made to glorify Him. And, and, and we're going to see over the next several weeks that this, this theme continue to help us see how we're hosed, all of us. And to help us see why Jesus is such a big deal. And for those of you who know Jesus, this bad news is really old bad news. But I believe good to reflect on. The Bible talk, says this word a lot. It says remember. The word remember is in the Bible quite a bit. It wants you to remember what God has done and, and the grace that's been given. And so we're going to have an opportunity to worship now. And so as, as they're coming forward, I want to give you a few moments just to kind of reflect on and think about like, what God has done that we have an opportunity to worship God and by singing and by praying, whatever you feel led to do as they lead us in this. But let me pray, 
and then I'm going to give you a couple minutes and give them a couple minutes to get set up, and then we will continue. God, I thank you that you do not mind hurting our feelings when it's something that we need to hear. I'm thankful that your word speaks truth and that it's full of grace. Because if this was just bad news with no good news, this would be terrible, terrible news. But because of Jesus, this is good news. This is part of our good, the good news that you want us to understand. And God, I pray um, that you would use this time uh, to further your purposes in us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.